0: Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Well, everybody, welcome to the London Lyceum. Once again, this is going to be a really fun episode here talking about theological interpretation of scripture. If you're not familiar with the London Lyceum, we're a uh, intellectual center, an institution dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, and we do a lot of fun with these things. This is going to be awesome. We've got a great group of guys to talk about all things theological interpretation of Scripture. Let me remind you, before we get started, if you haven't already, go ahead and hit the subscribe button to the YouTube channel. Hit the like on the video so other people, uh, it'll show up in their feeds and they get access to really good content because YouTube is full of junk. And this way, it'll be full of better stuff. Not to say that we're the best, but to say that we're better than a lot of stuff that's out there. Um, One thing when you think London Lyceum, we want to think creating sort of an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. Uh, One of my friends has sort of like dubbed that as we want to develop deep thinking, but also deep friendships. And one of the ways we found that's really fruitful is to host these sort of conversations. So we've got some of the best and brightest across the spectrum to just discuss ideas in a friendly, charitable way, but also being able to push back in the areas that we need, so this is gonna be a lot of fun. I'm gonna bring them in here one by one, but I, I guess I should bring in my co-host here, Garrett Walden. You know, you guys know Garrett. He's got uh, what looks like to be a, a screen from 1993 Windows DOS, but he's our senior editor at the London Lyceum. He's awesome. He loves all things Baptist history, so this will this is gonna be a good mix. We've got me, who's a philosopher, Garrett, who's a Baptist history nerd. And uh, a bunch of guys who know all about the Bible, so this will be fun. Since I'm a philosopher, we don't read the Bible usually, so this will be a good experience. I'm kidding; it's a joke. It's supposed to be fun. All right, let's let's bring everybody in here. So I'll bring in Dr. Dan Trier. He is uh, what you, what's you've got this special title? I wrote it down: Gunther H. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Nodler. Nodler, professor of theology at Wheaton College. Dan has written awesome books, but he's got one on this topic that I have read and I've purchased myself. I'll put it in the screen here, this nice little introduction to theological interpretation of Scripture. Fabulous little volume. So if, if you don't know much about it, I-, I commend you to get a copy of that. We also have three others here. We have uh, Mark I Hopefully I did that right. Uh, he's also got a nice little volume on reading Scripture canonically that you should go get your hands on a copy of that I have and have read. And then we also have two others. We have Dr. Heath Thomas, who I don't have his awesome magnum opus on uh manifesto, which is a shame on me. I didn't think about it till today. I should have bought this and read it so I could promo it, but I'm going to put it in the description anyway, so you can have a link to it. And we also have Dr. Con Campbell, which I didn't mention Dr. Heath Thomas is president of Oklahoma Baptist University. So he is definitely the most significant among us lesser beings. <laughs> and then Con Campbell, who is professor and associate research director at Sydney College of Divinity. And just to show my range here, I have his Basics of <laughs> Biblical Greek here, the verbal aspect book tells you uh, it's got underlined. So I clearly, I actually read it. If you look in here,
1: excellent. That's a yeah, fabulous book. Advances in the study. Oh. <laughs> this is coming out Thank in the right?
2: Uh, no the the first one <laughs> basics is coming out in the second edition
1: that's right that's the one yeah. so second edition yeah. of the basics that's great i'm looking forward to that one
0: so Thank this you. is going to be awesome we're going to start we, we the format here is pretty similar to the stuff we've done in the past we'll have an opportunity everybody's going to have an opportunity to just sort of talk talk shop on theological interpretation of scripture then everybody'll have a chance to make sure that they get some time to sort of Jab and push back on some things that they might say, I don't know about that. I I don't love the way that that's going or I really like that and I'd like to build on that. And then we'll just have a total free discussion and there will be time for Q&A. So if you guys who are watching have questions, thoughts, feel free to chat that at any time we see that and I will make sure to note the questions that I think are the most relevant so that we can include them in our discussion. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and get started because you guys didn't come here to watch me or listen to me. You came to listen to these esteemed gentlemen. I'll start with uh, Dr. Trier, and we can start just broadly. What do you think theological interpretation of Scripture is? Why do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Or why do you think people who think it's a bad thing are wrong? We can talk about, you know, the relationship of human authorial intent and different things related to that if we, if we want, but I'll let you go in the direction that you want to go. This should be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you.
3: Well, you'll have to forgive me for, for scripting initial remarks to keep myself within a time limit. So here goes eight minutes. Uh, the subtitle of my 2008 book, which yes, of course, you should all go by to help put my daughter through college The subtitle speaks of recovering a Christian practice, suggesting that TIS aims to recover what should be the church's perennial approach. Thus, TIS advocates typically prioritize one or more of three hermeneutical contexts, canon, creed, and or culture. Canon, that is relating particular passages to the rest of scripture on more than historical or inductive biblical theological grounds also attending to literary connections and being open to theological connections that avoid a contextual proof texting. Creed, that is relating particular passages and larger summaries of biblical teaching to the rule of faith as it became embodied in the ecumenical creeds, perhaps also appropriating Protestant confessional traditions that widen beyond the patristic Trinitarian and Christological dogmas. Culture, that is, relating particular passages to contemporary pastoral contexts, addressing presuppositions not simply as baggage to set aside as much as possible, but also as materials that may be helpful on our interpretive pilgrimage. This account focused on overt advocates for TIS or related terminology, whether evangelical or mainline Protestant or Roman Catholic. That focus left aside some relevant scholars and it certainly included a range of approaches that were broader than my own. Early TIS discourse contained frequent contrasts with historical criticism and sometimes those critiques were one-sided. They affirmed the importance of history inadequately or attacked modern approaches overzealously. They loosely lumped grammatical historical exegesis and evangelical concepts of biblical theology together with characterizations of wider scholarly guilds. They probably seemed to align with theologians against biblical scholars, although much of this critical discourse was generated by exegetes themselves. And some zealous rejoinders from biblical scholars similarly needed more scholarly care and Christian patience too. In any case, Despite its excesses, TIS has helpfully highlighted painful tensions we needed to address. Accordingly, TIS has had a leavening effect in biblical scholarship, and it has fostered some fruitful forms of interdisciplinary exchange. It has also had a leavening effect in theological scholarship. It made academic space for theologians to write directly about Scripture And to reference scripture as a theological source rather than simply an indirect influence on other theologians' discourse. As I suggested in a 2010 article, it made ecumenical, or perhaps we could even use that loaded word post liberal, space for evangelical theologians to re enter the academy in ways that parallel the role of biblical theology a generation earlier. If this analysis of TIS advocacy as a recent historical phenomenon, captures the gist of its net gains and inevitable costs, then the rest of tonight's agenda challenges me to articulate a version that's rooted in my own evangelical Protestant convictions. Of course, evangelical too is a contested and costly term to use, but theologically speaking, there I still stand. To return then to our three interpretive contexts, Regarding the canon as divine and human discourse, evangelical biblical theology provides a wonderful heritage. In many respects, the TIS attention to canon is a post-liberal recovery of what evangelicals were already doing. But we sometimes confused historical integrity with a specifically Hersheyan account of authorial intention, and a largely inductive approach to biblical theology, which TIS advocates, not least under the influence of careful historians like David Steinmetz helpfully contested. As evangelicals wrestled more extensively with the relationship between the Testaments in the 1990s, the emergence of TIS opened the possibility, at least for scholars like me, that the relationship between Scripture's divine and human discourse could be more hermeneutically complex or theoretically underdetermined without weakening verbal plenary inspiration. Regarding the creedal rule of faith and confessional traditions, a magisterial Protestant understanding affirms sola scriptura as the final authority over other theological sources. The rule of faith is a summary identification of the God scripture reveals and an affirmation of a unified salvation history to which the two Testaments bear witness. In this way, it contributes to the outworking of the analogy of faith. Subject to scripture itself, Rarely if ever does the rule determine exegetical decisions, even if it influences questions we ask and patterns we see. Regarding interpretive communities, the contextual challenges are not unique to TIS. Protestants, all of us must continue to wrestle with ecclesiology's hermeneutical impact and with powerful effects of academic and ecclesial socialization. In 2008, in that uh, book that you're supposed to buy, I already uh, spent a chapter acknowledging that like much of both the academy and Western Christianity, TIS has not adequately engaged the global South. But in its critique of the modern guilds, commitment to the Christian past and concern for service to the church, TIS can encourage exegesis that is contextually engaged without being culturally determined. How then should we assess the maturation of TIS? That is the focus of an article I have just published in the Journal of Theological Interpretation. I don't have as much interest in whether you read it because uh, you can't buy it. So, um, you know, that hardly helps. Seriously, its subtext is that we should generally celebrate this maturation, but with historical responsibility and scholarly restraint, comes the temptation of avoiding academically unpopular perspectives. TIS should not indulge in churchly people-pleasing or shrill superficiality, but part of its promise is the challenge to attempt academically and or ecclesially risky projects. TIS as I see it is a large-scale vocational paradigm that comes to expression in smaller-scale work on particular texts. In between the large and the small scale, it may overlap considerably with both biblical and systematic theology as different ways of synthesizing material from multiple passages. The native genre of TIS, in my view, is expository. The sermon, the commentary, the essay, the exposition within a larger work. Whereas those larger works of biblical or systematic theology like the Christology book I have coming out this fall, uh, by the way, draw upon the practice of TIS. Tongue was in cheek there. Draw upon the practice of TIS, even as TIS draws upon them in relation to particular texts. So at its best, the paradigm and practice of TIS point to God as the primary author, subject matter, and context of biblical interpretation, and thus to the church as a secondary but vital context. The academy can be a useful source of exegetical tools, an insightful critic of the church, and a sphere of professional public service, but it is a tertiary and even optional context for biblical interpretation as a Christian practice. Wanting to avoid quarreling about words, I do not have a huge stake in the terminology of TIS as such. I have only written about its recent manifestation because, like biblical theology, despite fuzzy contours, it can bring the more fundamental Christian practice into sharper focus. Thanks.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Trier. That was excellent. Um, next up, I'll let uh, Dr. Genalette give us a little tour. And what I should have done is do this cool spotlight layout so that everybody can get the good stuff. All right. I'll let you take it away, Mark.
4: Okay. Um, I'm reminded in these settings... About uh, Garrison Keillor's line about having a face for radio. I mean this you, know, you have to have a look at yourself, you'd see these things. Um, well, golly, um, D- Dan just did such a remarkable job writing something out. I guess now it's for something a little different. I, I uh, this this will not be as as co-ed as what we just heard, but let, I'll, I'll frame some of my own um, sort of thoughts around this somewhat biographically. Um, and I because i I do think, um, I'm probably representative. I'd, I'd be curious to hear from the others on the panel as well. I'm you know, probably representative of <clears throat> many evangelical Bible students, seminary graduates from 20 plus years ago. I don't think things are all that different right now, frankly. And that, that's that's another conversation piece worth having. Like, where's the conversation right now, both within the guild and within the evangelical world? I'd, I'd be curious to hear what people think. I don't. I don't think the nodal points of the conversation are all that different, frankly, than what they were 20 years ago. That's intriguing. Um, You know, I came out of seminary with a certain level of what I would call sort of lower critical finesse. I mean, I was, you know, I was a classic um, product of of hard work on Greek and Hebrew, and then, um, you know, went through my seminary work, but knew that uh, just wrestled with how to move from that kind of lower critical engagement with the with the Bible, what we might call the brass tax of exegesis, and just looking for tools for how one moves to speak in, in theological slash homiletical terms, I it's funny how how much within the <clears throat> within the tradition itself, some of these um, the the um, renewal of commitment to the Bible itself often often falls or or takes place on the anvil of, um, a crisis of preaching. And I, I think, the, you think about Karl Barth, you know, comes out of the germ, ger, the German liberal tradition. And it's like, I don't, I don't you know, I, I, I don't know really what to say to people in the pulpit, you know, when it comes to the, the theological training that I've had. And if I can, you know, kind of put it in a silly way, I thought, well, maybe I'll just give the Bible a try. I think that there's a sense in which a lot of us kind of wrestle with what do we do with, um, with all of the, with, the, with these lower critical skills that we've been given, because, the crisis that I remember I had personally about 25 years ago was when I got into a pulpit or even into, let's say, a youth group setting, I knew how to describe the Bible, but I didn't really know how to move beyond description. And that seemed to really be a product of the methods that I had been taught. So when I when I arrived at graduate school years ago now in St. Andrews, Scotland, I was there with, I, I think I was there in the time of the Shekinah Glory was kind of set, settling on the place. Um, I arrived with a, a bunch of like-minded men and women who were really bringing similar questions. And it was in seminars there um, where I think these these concerns about the limitations of the historical grammatical or the historical critical project, and I think that's an interesting point that Dan made. i I think we could, could kind of press into that because he's wanting to make a distinction on some level between the historical grammatical project and st- historical criticism. I think that's probably fair. And yet I also think, you know, the historical grammatical project that I was taught still breathed the historicism of a kind of late 19th century, really recent phenomenon in the history of biblical reception. So that'd be worth talking about a little bit more. Um, But for me, it was a doctoral seminar. And I was like every evangelical, you know, seminary student in the day. I I read everything that Tom Wright wrote. I, I was a Tom Wright devotee. Um, and our first seminar uh, and and when I was at St. Andrews, there was a, a kind of live doctoral seminar around the question of theology and the Bible well, that was led by Chris Seitz at the time. And our our first seminar, we sat around a room and there was maybe 15, 17 of us in there. And we compared and contrasted the work of Tom Wright and the work of Hans Frey, all centered around the question um, how does one discover the aims and intentionality of Jesus? Um, for And this is where things began to get concretized for me, and I think my cronies at the time there at St. Andrews, just began to see that for someone like Tom Wright, and again, I'm not disparaging this at all, but for someone like Tom Wright, who's representative, I think, of a certain mode of biblical exegesis and biblical interpretation, um, the way in which one comes to understand Jesus's aims and intentions is by... Um, a historical reconstruction of the worldview of the moment out of which Jesus arose. So once you can kind of reconstruct that, that that then becomes a hermeneutical lens by which the gospels can then be read, and Jesus's aims and intentionalities can then you know subsequently be be understood. Then, then we read Hans Frey. That for me was like reading Chinese at the time. I I didn't know I didn't know what I was engaging. Um, and so we read the eclipse of biblical narrative, and then we read the identity of Jesus Christ. And these were strange books for someone that came out of the evangelical tradition. And here's Hans Frei saying, "You want to understand the aims and intentions of Jesus, well, you have to look closely at the biblical narratives themselves." So here's this sort of post-liberal, you know, whoever from Yale who's helping me as an evangelical think in terms of biblical sufficiency um, and, and biblical authority and, and canonical consciousness. When coming to terms with some sort of very basic questions about who is Jesus, where where do I go to figure that out? Not primarily by an attention to the worldview of the Second Temple, but by a close reading of the biblical narratives themselves and the way in which they frame the person, work of Jesus and his actions and his speech. That was kind of mind blowing for me. I have to admit, I, I remember not knowing what to do with all of that. And the question that was central back then, and it's sort of interesting for me to hear Dan talk about these things, because I think there's still questions that are that are on us, was, well, what's the controls on this thing? Like, how, how does this thing, you know, keep from getting out of out of control? How does it not become a kind of um, uh, non-realistic approach to reading the text, or that the text just becomes a wax nose of what it is I want to impose on it? How How do we control this? And that that's been a driving question that I've had, I had back in the day. I think my cronies did as well. And I think I still do to this moment. And that's, this is where, and i I'll, I'll, Dan, I'll have to read your piece. I've not, I've not, I, I didn't see that that's come, that's come out yet. Um, but I have read some recent pieces by um, uh, Rusty Reno, his little book, on um, Ecclesial Interpretation. Just discovered today because my friend Don Collett sort of pointed me in, in the direction of, of um, pro-ecclesia, a journal last year uh, celebrating the work of Joseph Mangina up at Wycliffe, Ephraim Radner wrote a really lovely piece on, on theological interpretation entitled, um, oh, I think I even have it right here. Sorry, y'all. Uh, I contain the multitudes. And and basically both of them in their own ways are saying, and I think this is right, theological interpretation is not a method. Um, and if you're if you're looking for sort of methodological rigor, um, that that's not what theological interpretation offers. I think this is on analogy to why Brevard Childs, for example, was somewhat allergic um, to the canonical approach being described as canonical criticism. You know, now, now you have it sort of added to a list of redaction's geschichte or gatung's and then we'll just slap on in some, you know, canon's there as well. And I think Childs' basic point was, you no, know, the canonical approach is not another... A species of of modern criticism. It's it's an it's a set of instincts. It's a set of um, it's recognizing one's location in a particular ecclesial sphere. It's a social location by which one receives the tradition and the word in conversation with one another. Um, and I think that relates something to the question about the rule of faith and the and the tradition. I, I love how Dan framed that. The the rule of faith is not overly determinative. N- neither really should the the approach to theological reception. I mean, theological interpretation to me seems to be kind of low-hanging fruit. <laughs> this is what makes it kind of funny to think about how one thinks about these terms in, in terms of the guild. But it's low-hanging fruit. It's a commitment to God's word as divine speech that recognizes a kind of Trinitarian metaphysic by which those words are to be received and understood. And then once those pieces get settled on, on the interpretive ship, then it's like, well, go play all the shuffleboard you want. Um, you know, go and, and the, the the proof is in the pudding. I find myself with my students at Beeson now somewhat regularly saying that to them. They'll they'll come to me in an exegesis class. I just finished the whole semester on Ezekiel. We can talk about that, which would be fascinating. Um, and I'll have a student say, well, I'm thinking about reading this text in this way um, in light of this particular theological subject matter. And, and what do you think? And my answer often is, well, go give it a go and, and the proof will be in the pudding. We'll just have to see if this works or not. Um, so all to say, I think the question about methodology and constraint are are important ones. I think those also reveal something about our position in modernity and the far side of modernity. We're still wired in a certain way in terms of a commitment to methodology. Um, but I'm, I'm, I just sit more comfortably now to recognizing that theological interpretation is a set of instincts that helps us read the scriptures well. And at the end of the day, it's only good insofar as it helps us read the scriptures. If if it's an if it's a if it's a means to escape to happier pasture theological pastures elsewhere that that basically lead the Bible in a supersessionistic superstition, frame, well, well then the, the method itself is problematic. But theological interpretation, I think, at its best, um, releases us again to go back to scripture again, and again. That that to me. Is the proper location where theology is properly done, and I, and I will just say, I mean, I think Dan and the others on the on the on the uh, podcast would agree that that's John Webster's legacy to me in this whole conversation is. Um, at the end of the day, the proof is in the actual engagement with the Bible itself. That that's what's really important, and I think we all have seen species of a theological interpretation that we say mm, that doesn't. That, I don't know if that passes the smell test, and we've seen others that are kind of remarkable. and And my my response to all that is, I man, just just go go and you know do do more. Let the, let this thing increase. All right, that wasn't nearly as tidy <laughs> as Dan's, but I'll I'll leave you with that.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Mark. This has already been very stimulating. So I'm looking forward to all the discussion that we'll have after this. So I'll let, uh, Dr. Heath Thomas, you can uh, jump in next here and, uh, see if you can top Mark.
5: Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, Mark. is always very good and clear and I enjoyed that autobiographical approach. Uh, Mark, that was fantastic. Um, I think in that spirit, I should probably uh, say a little bit about myself and how I enter into this discussion. Uh, Prior to my time being a president, um, I have been an Old Testament professor for, well, since around 2005. And so um, that's really how I approach this question of theological interpretation of Scripture The angle of entry may seem strange to some, but for me, it's the only way I know how to enter it is from the perspective of Old Testament, Old Testament interpretation. And so when I think about theological interpretation, um, you know, for, for my part, I'm concerned with theological interpretation of scripture, first and foremost, on how does this help me read the Old Testament as Christian scripture? And, you know, when we're talking about scripture, a lot of times we think about, well, we know what we mean by that. And I actually think that that's a mistake. If we are talking about theological interpretation of scripture, we need to be clear in the first place about what we mean by this. And so uh, if I'm talking about theological interpretation of scripture for my Protestant location, I'm thinking about a two-testament canon of Old and New Testaments, Uh, coherently and in concert proclaiming the triune God. And so from that perspective, um, I've 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 already demarcated my Protestant commitments, uh, but I've also said, um, I I haven't said quite enough about what I mean uh, in terms of the Old Testament. Are we talking about um, Greek or Hebrew traditions? What are we talking about there? And I I think that those are pieces that uh, probably we need to spend more time talking about um, are both in play. Does one take priority over another in terms of uh, uh, kind of chastening our readings? Uh, You have movement both um, for the Greek or for the Hebrew in Christian tradition. So um, again, scripture Old New Testament in concert as it proclaims uh, the Triune God. However, uh, there's still more conversation to be had there. If I were to talk about um, a kind of definition for theological interpretation, uh, I've just written this, so I would just say it this way. Uh, theological interpretation is, at its most basic calculation, interpretation with a focus upon God, theology, right? Right. Uh, without defining that or over-defining that. So it's a focus upon God and God's address, that is theological disclosure, for communion with God in all of life. So to reiterate, if I'm giving a definition, theological interpretation, it's most basic calculation, as I understand it, is interpretation with a focus upon God, theology, and God's address, theological disclosure, for communion with God in all of life. So I think that communion piece is uh, really, really important. Um, One wonders if one really understands theological interpretation of Scripture, if it's not lived uh, or embodied in the life of faith amongst, uh, you know, a confessing community. Um, I have these echoes of Paul ringing in my ear about, you know, having knowledge without lived reality behind it, that, that's not really what theological interpretation is, is aimed towards. So uh, there are a lot of complications with that um, definition as I've described it. At least, again, locating my, my work and my reading uh, practice in Old Testament studies, um, one of the basic questions that we have in Old Testament studies is, is the Old Testament theological? Um, and this goes to some of what Mark was talking about and even what Dan was talking about in terms of uh, some of the tension points uh, in modern theological interpretation with other reading strategies in the guild. Uh, some would argue that the Old Testament is not theological, uh, especially when you look at the reading practice that focuses on uh, sociology of knowledge or, or politi- political kind of structures of power or uh, cultural realities Um, if, if the old Testament is not, or the new Testament or scripture is really the manifestation of cultures of power, rather than God disclosing, uh, to needful humanity, something about himself, then, you know, probably theological interpretation misfires. However, if the old Testament and new Testament are indeed theological, if scripture discloses, who God is and God himself speaks in and through scripture, then we can talk about theological interpretation. And this is where, as everyone knows, probably on this uh, podcast, this is where um, getting the right focus on what is the subject matter of scripture, uh, getting that right becomes very, very important. So theological interpretation is not a, in my estimation, it's not a, a strategy as much as it is a wrestling with the reality of the subject matter of scripture itself and that is god and of course brevard childs uh famously uh, zeroed in on this in the 60s and 70s and then later in the 80s and 90s when he talked about um the reality or the content or the substance or the res or the sacha of the biblical text all of that language is heaped up and it's designed to to get at this idea of what is the subject matter of the old testament well if it is god god disclosed in israel's scripture and proclaimed in the person and work of jesus christ well then actually theological interpretation is not an imposition on the the material of the old and new testaments it is a um it's actually reading reading the book rightly uh to read the book in that way and so you know, is the Old Testament or New Testament theological? I would say yes. And that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about theological um, interpretation. I think one of the other challenges is when you use that language, theological interpretation of Scripture is, is about theology. And, and um, you know, one of the, the big challenges from Old Testament interpretation uh, comes in the, the question of, well, okay, if, if we're talking about theology, what do, what I, what do we actually mean here? Are we talking about systematic theology, kind of a crystalline chandelier that uh, if you press it too far, it just shatters? Is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about theological systems? Are we talking about theological frameworks, whether something like a law gospel dialectic, a covenantal substructure? What are we talking about when we mean theology? Um, so uh, one of the big challenges, I think, uh, and this we can talk more about this, but um that I see when people talk about, you know, is theological interpretation a good thing or a bad thing? What they're really asking is theological interpretation of Scripture: is it dogmatic and conformist, or is there room to read the Old Testament and surprising in surprising and new ways? Or are you just trying to cook the books to get your uh, systematic theological kind of outcome? And that—that's a certain kind of uh, understanding of what. You know, dogmatic theology is, I think, but from biblical scholars, especially, that's a that's a real life question. And you know, my own reading uh, in theological interpretation, there's plenty of examples where actually a a close read of the biblical text uh, leads us in all wonder, all sorts of wonderful and surprising ways. And I would argue that it doesn't have to be theologically uh, conformist in an overly restrictive way. But God can truly speak and speak to God's God's people, but it may mean that, uh, you know, theological systems and categories uh, are always reformed or nuanced in light of the teaching of Scripture. So uh, another challenge, I think I would say, when we're talking about theological interpretation of Scripture, um, does theological interpretation of Scripture have the uh, kind of the qualities to attend to uh, the the uh, diverse witness of the Old and New Testament. And I think, you know, one of the things that biblical scholars constantly press in and on is the diverse witness of the Old Testament. Now, usually what they mean is things like genres or text forms or viewpoints or something like that. And uh, at its best, I think biblical scholarship is right to recognize kind of the multifaceted witness of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament um, but what I would say here is that um, I think theological interpretation at at its best, even if we're saying it's about God and God's addressed, uh, for communion with God in all of life, I think actually uh, the diversity of form and the diversity of language and the diversity of kind of genre, um, and even the diversity of topic in in scripture uh, provides ample opportunity for the diversity of scripture to line up with, what is a very confusing life that we we live uh, both you know in majority world contexts but also in the Western world context And so I think there's uh, a challenge there about the diversity of form as it relates to theological interpretation. Um, I've already mentioned the uh, sometimes the accusation that theological interpretation of Scripture is simply a retreat to s- systematic theology. I won't address that uh, any more than just to say, that may be the case. I just don't think it has to be the case. And then finally, let me just mention one other. Um, uh, I, I get this sometimes from students and or other Old Testament colleagues that theological interpretation is simply uh, a repristination of some sort of early Christian interpretation. And I think actually this is where systematic uh, categories can help us. Um, if uh, If Systematic theology teaches us that time is a gift of God. It's impossible to repristinate the past, or we shouldn't do that, or else we're not reckoning rightly with God's providence and time. And so I think theological interpretation of scripture is not necessarily uh, a repristination of the past or Christian interpreters of the past, but it should be an understanding of how the church has read its scriptures in the past. And I think actually this helps us attend to the diversity of form, of the Old and New Testaments as God's Word. So, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think we should equate uh, theological interpretation with a repristination, but I do think uh, as it's an ecclesial practice, I think that's correct. We do need to reckon with the, the way that the church has read the scriptures for the past 2,000 years and, uh, you know, recognize that maybe our reading practices might be novel in our day uh but not necessarily um as normative as we might think so i think uh, you know again theological interpretation as i understand it is uh, it's a practice where we read uh scripture as god's word it discloses god theology broadly construed and uh, uh it, it it helps us understand divine disclosure god's address uh for communion with god that is a lived practice In all of life. And that means that uh, this is where I differ from some. I actually think TIS is a reading practice, um, not just primarily or only located within the context of the sermon. I think it spills out into the world. And, uh, you know, uh, we could talk about that even more. I think I'll stop there.
0: Thanks, Heath. That was awesome. This has been a lot of fun already, and we've saved the best for last here in Dr. Campbell, so I will let you uh, take it away. Though you are on mute still.
2: I said, please don't build it up that way. Uh, I feel like going last, I, I have very little to add. I resonate very strongly with everything that's been said so far and especially with the number of points that Heath made potentially because he was the last one to speak and i remember it more vividly but uh no at many points i was uh nodding in agreement um and uh some of the points that i did plan to say were very well articulated already um i think i'll take a cue from mark's lead with the biographical approach to begin with um first i come at this question as a new testament scholar but also as a i think as a biblical theologian and my initial theological training was at Moore theological college which prides itself on being a hub of a certain kind of biblical theology going back to the 1960s initially with the work of new testament scholar donald Robinson, but developed further and popularized by people such as graham goldsworthy and bill dumbrell and barry webb and um it's it's sort of when you go to More College, it's sort of just part of the air you breathe. You you do study it, um, you know, in a, a sort of transparent, a- analytical way. But in reality, um, the whole community operates uh, with this sort of assumption um, that we will read the Bible in a biblical theological way, and that's not only because the faculty does that, but it's also because all the students, even before they get to More College mostly already think that way because they're a product of the of the ministry of graduates from a college from previous decades and it's part of the the ecclesial context you know that i came up through um um ordained in the anglican church of australia and and that happened uh through the sydney anglican church but um but actually it's true of churches, evangelical churches in Australia, well beyond Anglicanism, well beyond Sydney Anglicanism. And in fact, I I became a Christian through an independent uh, evangelical university church, but one that was highly influenced by Sydney Anglicanism and in particular, more college. And so this biblical theology, biblical theological approach to scripture um, is, is sort of part of the air that we breathe down here. And and f- in some ways that's made it difficult for me to kind of analyze because um, this it's so well in- ingrained in the way I approach Scripture. But what I think is really strong about it, and, and it's not as though the more college version of biblical theology um, is perfect or without flaw. In fact, it's always being, I think, tested and refined and developed. But what I do like about it is it's an attempt to understand how the bible hangs together according to the bible so um, really trying to take its cue from the biblical text itself because of course there's intra-canonical interpretation going on not just the new testament reading of the old testament but old testament reading of the old testament as well um, later parts of the old testament interpreting um, earlier parts and so on and so forth and so there. Um, there is already a tradition of how to read scripture within scripture, but also there's a structure. Uh, you might analyze that through a, a kind of covenantal structure, uh, or a promise fulfillment kind of structure, or a salvation historical kind of structure, which is probably the one that I resonate most closely with. But they all work together. They're all, you know, they're all present. And so, if we take the the series of covenants through. Um, the biblical text, together with salvation history, together with promise fulfilment, together with intracanonical interpretation, then you build this sort of picture of the Bible um, interpreting itself and giving you the the clues to how to understand it as a whole. Um, it, it has a storyline. It has a development arc. Um, and at any point, um, as we read the Bible, we need to understand where do we fit in the story, so that we don't, you know, misunderstand. Um, parts of the text and apply them in ways that are no longer appropriate, say for new people, new covenant people, um, as compared to people who belong to the mosaic covenant, um, you know, so you need to know where you are in the story, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just a very brief rough shot sort of uh, description of the more college brand of biblical theology that is uh, really strongly informs the way that I come at the text. But um, also as a New Testament scholar, uh, if I read Paul, for example, um, it doesn't take long to see that Paul is making similar moves. Um, and this is debated, of course, but Paul appeals to the the covenants found in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he appeals to the story arc of the Bible. He relates the covenants together, the Abrahamic covenant as opposed to the Mosaic covenant, for example, in Galatians. Uh, he... Um, Sees a promise fulfillment schema. And so he seems to believe, I, I think it's fairly obvious, he seems to believe in a, a salvation history. And he sees himself as part of that. Obviously, Jesus is the central part and the climactic part of that. But even as the apostle to the Gentiles, he has a role in salvation history. So I think if you, even if you just approach Paul in a completely secular way, in a completely historical way, You can't help but have to read what he's writing in a theological way, meaning as Heath so well articulated um, and what Brevard Charles articulated very forcefully, you have to read the scriptures for what they are, which is scripture. Um, and, And Paul is writing religious texts or scriptural texts or spiritual texts or whatever, however you want to describe it. And so if you approach Paul from a purely historical point of view, you say, okay, well, first of all, he's a Jew. All right, he reads the Hebrew Bible. Okay, Um, he is in first century, uh, he's a first century Jew against a Greco-Roman background. All right, so putting the historical pieces together together, this is what we know about the author and so on and so forth. So what does it mean when he talks about God? Well, it only makes sense if you understand it in his context, which is that this is the God of Israel and he's a monotheist and so on and so forth. And uh, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, um, uh, and then when you, you go further and read his arguments about how God has been working through the promises and the fulfillment and the, um, the covenants and salvation history climaxing in God's yes to all these promises, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and Messiah promised uh, to King David um, in the Psalms and and so on, then, you know, how can you not read Paul, uh, A, as a theologian and B, as writing theological texts? So it seems to me uh, a little bit of a no brainer that theological interpretation of scripture is the most authentic way to read scripture because it's scripture. Um, it's supposed to be interpreted theologically, and of course, you can interpret it in other ways as well, which which may um, be complementary. Historical being a very important one, sociologically that uh, is an important thing to add in there as well, um, linguistically, etc. But um, none of that, to my mind, undermines what these texts are and and how we should read them and so in a in a way it's it's sort of like meta genre analysis you know you don't you read the newspaper as the newspaper you don't read the newspaper as uh an encyclopedia you don't read it as a phone book if people remember what those are you don't read it as um a textbook on astronomy it's, it's not. So you, you read it as a newspaper, that's, that's basic to genre analysis, but I think it's basic to what I would term meta-genre analysis, um, meaning the scriptures with all their genres built in. Um, if scripture is uh, intended to be scripture, even if you don't believe in the God that the scriptures talk about, you still need to read them as they're intended. So you might read a newspaper article with you know, or maybe watch the news and depending on your political perspective, watch Fox News or watch CNN and choose which one, but you 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 take it as fiction, but you still take it as the genre of news, right? You don't have to believe what's being said, but you still understand that, okay, they're reporting on things that are happening and they're giving opinions about it perhaps, but this is news, right? We get what this is. Um So my point simply is that you don't have to believe it to take it the way it's supposed to be taken. And I think that's true about scripture. That might be controversial. Um, I think that's true about scripture. You you actually don't have to believe it um, to read it correctly. Now, I think ultimately um, my reading of scripture leads me to believe it in that sense. Um, So scripture actually leads to belief. And that was my personal experience. I didn't come to scripture believing already it was the word of God. I came to scripture maybe with a neutral to skeptical view and then scripture itself led me to believe in God. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's part of the genius of scripture. Um, and part of the genius is this incredible diversity that, that Heath talked about, uh, as well. And I think it's okay. Therefore to accept that scriptures are messy, like really messy. And one of the problems that I have with systematizing theology, is um, that it wants to make neat edges where there are only rough edges. Um, And it seems to me from my reading of scripture, not from a a theological presumption, but from my reading of scripture, that God actually likes that, that he actually like, and look around our world, it's a messy world. Our lives are messy. Um, People are messy. Um, Creation is messy and yet ordered. Um, And so I think the scriptures are like that. There's an order, there is a unity. Um, but the diversity uh, should never be underplayed. And one of the problems that I have with um, contemporary church preaching is this desire to flatten out the biblical text, even if it's not an intentional desire, but the effect is a flattening uh, or, or turning the gospel even into a black and white message um, that Jesus died for my sins on the cross that's what the gospel is but look at romans 1 what paul articulates the gospel says this is my gospel doesn't even mention the cross um he doesn't mention my sins he mentions that um, jesus is declared to be the son of god which means messiah through his resurrection from the dead in fulfillment of messianic promises um as the son of david that's paul's gospel or at least one articulation of it so this is an example where i feel that um, systematizing, and sometimes this happens only in the pulpit, but nevertheless it happens, um, f- can flatten um, the endlessly w- wondrous riches, I think, of the scriptural text. And um, one of the things I love about being a, a biblical scholar, as opposed to a systematician, is that I can just enjoy that mess. And uh, I can appreciate the unity that's there and, and point that out and look to that. And biblical theology assumes a unity, but without downplaying the diversity. Um, whereas, um, you know, as I mentioned, one of the hazards of systematic theology, I think, and it doesn't mean that it has to go this way, but one of the hazards is um, that it does kind of flatten out or neaten up um, the mess, which I think is intentional. Um and I think it's it's part of God's brilliant design for the scriptures. Um, yeah. Um, just ran out of thought right there. So I might leave it. Um, that oh, works
1: great. with me. Yeah, that's great. I, I wanted to kick it back over to Dr. Trier and ask, you know, as I hear you brothers talk, part of me thinks to myself, who who, who would disagree with this? This is fantastic this is just it makes sense to me but then i remember well actually this is there are people that disagree with this perspective and at various points and uh to take your three kind of sees the the canon creed and culture i guess along the canonical line people might have various hesitations about topics like intertextuality along the creedal line bringing dogmatic categories uh kind of as presuppositions to the text but then also on the cultural lines a kind of presentism where you're bringing your questions to the text rather than kind of taking the 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 questions that the text has for itself what whatever however they might phrase that Um, I thought maybe we could just have some open discussion about why is it that there are those that are uncomfortable with TIS there may be different models of TIS that run run afoul on some of these uh, objections more so than others what's your perspective on that
0: yeah, and before you start, uh, just a reminder we had planned to do like everybody gets time to do negative. Let's just have a conversation here. Um, I think that'll be fun. I think this has gone really well, and I think that'll be a nice way to do it. And if you're watching live, just a reminder you can chat in your questions. All of us here will see them. So if they make sense to help the flow of the conversation, feel free to put them in here. I uh, would love to have them. All right, over to you. And I might disappear for like two seconds because my youngest is not being good. So I'll be right back. (laughs) Go ahead. Hey friend, are you a loyal listener to the London Lyceum? If you are, we really appreciate you, but we wanted to make sure you knew about our exclusive content option for the podcast. If you want For just $5 a month, you can get access to all Kiffin's Keep episodes, Genuinely Particular, Typology by Immersion, and The Hanover House, and any of our other exclusive content that we produce. And all the episodes will be right there in your normal feed. So go ahead and click the link in the show description, and you can sign up today. We appreciate you.
3: I think Mark's um, autobiographical comment was interesting to me that he he doesn't see the the guild situation as being that different now from twenty years ago. And I see that slightly differently than he does, I think, but his comment I think is instructive for the question you're asking, Garrett. I think there is still a kind of resistance and it would be oversimplified to use this word, but I'll use it anyway because Mark gave me the opening to, there's a certain kind of historicist resistance on the part of evangelical biblical scholarship that is a a half generation older or more experienced than most of us here, the generation that's getting ready to retire. And this is a huge generalization, and I apologize for that already, but I think there is a sense in which you get somebody like my friend and colleague, John Walton, who is a thoroughgoing Hersheyan who will make statements like the Bible is uh, not written to us, but for us and the like. And, you know, John and I have had conversations about this, so I'm not talking at all behind his back. Uh, You know, he he's nervous about what a certain version of TIS does, because for him, It substitutes the one context that should be determinative for everything, namely the original historical context and the scholar's reconstruction of the cognitive environment surrounding any particular text. It it substitutes for that context a potential plethora of contexts. For someone like John, the other contexts are relevant pretty much only insofar as they are to be corrected by what the scholar Um, discovers uh, in their reconstruction of the original historical context. Mark gave us a good New Testament uh, example of that, you know, in terms of historical Jesus studies. Now, I think Tom Wright's version of that is a lot more theologically engaged and sophisticated because he has a certain kind of worldview theology operating in how he does it. But nevertheless, there is a certain kind of methodological naturalist historicism there that I think um, led or enabled uh, a pioneering generation of evangelical biblical scholars to be able to return to the academy. And they are uh, nervous about um, how Certain kinds of openness to these other contexts early in the process rather than at the end of an exegetical process would, um, you know, um, jeopardize historical and authorial integrity um, at the human level. My own view is that that guild tendency is deeply socialized into us. And so I agree with Mark on that point. But I do think that there's a younger generation of scholars that um, that is less allergic to TIS on this point. They might not know how to do TIS. They might see versions of TIS that they think are poorly done. But when we interview potential doctoral students or early career job candidates in biblical studies, maybe they are misled and they think Dan Trier has actual influence at Wheaton, and they're trying to please me or something, um, but I don't think that's true. I just sense that there is a generational change among younger evangelical scholars on this point, at least in terms of um, how easily their hackles um, are raised.
1: That's great. That's great. Um, It it sure helps that your book is about 15 years old, so maybe your book had something to do with that, which I'm sure it's
3: certainly not. I know (laughs) what the sales figures are.
1: (laughs) Dr. Thomas, do you see a similar kind of generational uh, uh, shift, more TIS favorable in your presidency?
5: Yeah, I don't know. I think um, I Mark and I have actually talked about this. I I think and again, maybe it's because of my my area. Um, and and maybe Old Testament studies is much different than New Testament studies in terms of uh, the uh, the desire to to, to to make some historical context determinative for the meaning of this text or these you know these prophetic texts or whatever I my, my concern is with the Old Testament material uh, you know I don't boy, you'd never want to bet your house on some of these re- reconstructions, would you? I mean, these things, uh, you know, and I've, I've just, I've got a book on the profits coming out this fall, right? So I'm, I'm in, invested in the guild. I'm invested in this stuff. Um, however, uh, you know, my, my view is actually in old, te- so, you know, responding to Dan's comment, I think maybe, maybe it is discipline specific, uh, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, Zeitstrich for Alte Testament, Alicia uh, Wissenschaft is not going out of business anytime soon. Let's just say it that way. That journal is in full effect and uh, you know, and there's some really creative, interesting things going there, but I, I do think the historicist paradigm is, uh, is, is still uh, heavily influential Uh, especially amongst the younger generation. Now, to that point, I think there's an openness, uh, especially when you're talking about the subject matter of the Old Testament or the New Testament, recognizing the ontology is the language I would use, the ontology of Scripture, recognizing its whatness. uh, What it is is God's word for a needful humanity. And in in that sense, uh, to read it otherwise or to reduce or kind of segment off that kind of powerful divine voice in favor of some sort of historical um, voice reconstructed as it may be for old testament studies i just think it could be that we're we're uh it's kind of an adventure and missing the point uh so you know my view is uh you know we we do this historical work we you know and and we need to but i do believe however or whatever historical work is done, it needs to be recalibrated within the context of the ontology or the metaphysics of scripture and then read in that light. Uh, so I've just like a, a good example of this. Um, I've just written on this, uh, the whatness or the ontology of scripture and the underdetermined nature of the old Testament. In particular, I was looking at, uh, I was responding to the work of Chris Seitz and, and um, looking at Genesis one once again and why Elohim is used, and uh, uh, God spoke, God spoke, and let there be light, let there be light. And then 126 to 28, you've got this really strange shift to the plural, uh, let us make humankind in our image. And, uh, you know, my point there was not to determine what the whatness of us is. What I just wanted to say is that the text is creating pressure one way or the other. Whether we say it's a divine council, which I don't think is actually terribly convincing, but it's plural, and so then it converts back to the the, the singular right after that in, in Genesis 1. Uh, I I think the text is pressuring us to consider that God is many in some fashion without over determining that, and God is one, singular, without over determining that, and then the rest of the narrative plays itself out in Genesis 1, then 2, and then the rest of the Genesis narrative giving further color and nuance to what that oneness and manyness could be. And then in the full kind of testimony of scripture, what we begin to see is, well, there's a context for the one and the manyness of God. And uh, that's explainable uh, in Trinitarian grammar and logic. And so in that sense, you know, the, I think what I would come to is recognize that, you know, you can do all the historical work, which I think is necessary. You can do all the linguistic work, which I think is absolutely essential and unavoidable. But it's the theological uh, that sometimes gives you the best answers rather than kind of the cop-out. So I found actually some of the most interesting readings of Genesis 1 are are the uh, uh, ancient theologians rather than uh, the more modern biblical scholars. Just because they're, they're asking very interesting and, and pertinent questions that are theological, and that's the instinct. And I think that's... That's been really, uh, I think if, if there is a younger generation more open, that's what they're finding. Our graduates here are doing theological work because they're saying, wow, this is really interesting. This is helping me understand the text. And I, I do think there is social pressure to think about, you know, maybe I need to get a job. And so I'll do this. But uh, the most interesting stuff, I think, is the theological.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's so helpful. Uh, Dr. Ginolette. Um, since you mentioned the historicism, um, would you, would you say that a lot of the kind of the crux of the historicist, uh, kind of question with relation to TIS has to do with authorial intent? And I thought maybe you could help us understand the human authorial intent and divine authorial intent, uh, question that seems to be one that I hear quite often about this whole discussion.
4: Oh, man, there's so many things to talk about. This is fascinating. I'm glad to hear that from Dan. I mean, that that encourages me. You know, I teach in a seminary context, which is or divinity school context, which is quite different in some ways than, you know, postgraduate um, theological academics in terms of sort of traditional university training, guildish kind of thought. So I'm with Dan. I mean, my students are jazzed about this. I mean, I think that they realize they've got to preach and they've got to preach in a way that's Christian <clears throat> and the old testament kind of i'm with heath on this the old testament forces these students to think in theological terms i mean if you're just left with the tools of historical description that 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 does not a sermon make so i think that you know that's a th- these are big these are big vocational existential questions that my students are asking and rightly so and i think they find it's one of the nice things about being at Beeson. You know, the way in which our history and doctrine curriculum is here they, they find voices in the in the tradition um, that are engaging scripture in ways that they have never quite seen. I think that's where part of the fertility of all this is from a teaching perspective, when a student will read a Cyril of Alexandria on Jonah um, or Here's you know Saint Augustine reading Psalm one as an interlocution between the Father and the Son. Now you might not agree, you might not be persuaded by that. You might see some of this as maybe sort of exegetically um, uh, o- overly imaginative, but it's the fact that they're able to release that. I hate to use this term, but since since Heath's already done it, the ontological clutch, right? So that the Old Testament texts aren't just en route to something else. And I think that's the way in which um certain forms of biblical theology, or maybe even certain forms of 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 Old Testament hermeneutics, allows the allows the Old Testament to be Christian insofar as it's en route to something else. So you hear language like Christotelic, right? The Bible, the Old Testament witnesses to Christ in a kind of historically moving forward way. Um, that's to collapse the economy and ontology onto one another. I think the economic realities are true and they're important. And I think that's the 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 value of and again this is my training i'm from the reformed world that's the value of re- the redemptive historical approach the limitations of it are those those categories when i take them and i read augustine or even frankly calvin and, or luther and their exegesis of old testament text I, i'm in a weird land now because they're allowing those texts off of the surface character of their given verbal form to, 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 to render theological subject matter right there. And I think this is really crucial without a lot of white noise hermeneutically, you know, so we, we, and, th- and this is, maybe I'm turning to an old man and I see it. All of us been talking for years now, but T heat has got gray beard there. And I mean, we're, we're all getting older. Um, but I, I'm getting to the place now where I'm less defensive. I used to feel like I was always defensive on this stuff. I'm like, just let, let's go offensive on this. Um, because I do think there's something very generative about understanding scripture as engagement with the promise of the divine presence that, that that's actually pretty hermeneutically altering. When you recognize that the Bible's not just instrumentalized for our theological purposes, but it's the unique medium by which God communicates his own triune presence to us. Now That. That's a game changer hermeneutically. So I, I'm I'm with uh, Dan in the sense that I do think the younger generation that has their ecclesial uh, sites in terms of their vocational identity set, they're all over this and rightly so. Um, I also serve as the book review editor for BBR Old Testament. So I see all these things that are coming in. <laughs> you know, the new NICOT commentary and this, and they're all great. I mean, they're great. But I think we're still waiting for Um, That kind of commentary work, frankly, if I can just put it maybe in this genre, um, that naturally interweaves sort of the best of what modern criticism has given us um, and recognizes, and this is Karl Barth's influence on me, but recognize this as just first steps, right? I mean, it's not, unfortunately, modernity has taught us that that's the whole kit and caboodle, but these are just first steps to now sort of think about these things in terms of pressing them through to the subject matter. I still think we're waiting for examples of that. And and Dan will know something about this. It's kind of fascinating. Like the Brazos series, for example, is just kind of fizzled out, right? I mean, so that that's worth talking about. Here, here was like an exciting venture about 15, 20 years ago, and it just kind of fizzled out. Well, well, why? I mean, I think that's an interesting sort of sociological question to raise within both evangelicalism and the larger theological conversation in the guild why, why did it fizzle out um, well, what what does that mean now you're asking the question about historicism I mean my very sort of rudimentary pedestrian understanding of this and I'm very influenced by Frederick Frederick beiser's work on on um, uh, his little book after Hegel which is fantastic on on the rise of historicism in the late 20th in the late 19th century. But it was basically a, a reaction to both to, to a kind of metaphysic that was either Christian or enlightenment that became that that recognized that truth is delivered within particular cultures and places and times that took hold I think within biblical studies so that anything that was a kind of larger metaphysic by which the text held together in all of its diversity um, diversity certainly overshadowed I think uniformity within within the biblical text. I'm in the Anglican world as well. I mean, what, what, whatever that means, I'm still trying to figure it out. But I'm in the Anglican world as well. One of my favorite um, articles in the Articles of Religion, and I am an Articles of Religion kind of guy, um, is Article 20 that says the church has the authority to think through how it orders itself ecclesially. So in terms of of ecclesial discipline, but it goes on to say, but the church cannot. Prescribe anything that's contrary to the word of God written. And this is one of my favorite phrases. I think it's so pregnant in the articles of religion. Neither can it exposit one portion of scripture so that it be repugnant to another. That I love non repugnancy. That is a great phrase, which sits, I think, right on top of the priority of the divine author. So we, we're not denying. The diversity of biblical authors are not denying the, the instrumental, if I can use classic evangelical terminology, we're not denying organic inspiration. Um, but we're recognizing that, again, there is a supervening voice in this that allows all these diverse voices to come together, not not in a reductionistic way, but in a way that's much like a diamond held up against a refracted light. And we're talking about divine things, the very being of God, his revealed will to humanity. That requires, I think, I'm glad it doesn't come like Grudem's systematic theology, as, as great as that work has been within the church. It comes to us in this sort of variegated way. The kind of diversity though that I think still dominates the guild, and, and this and I think Heath was leaning in on this, is a kind of critical understanding that's driven by religious historical concerns. So so the diversity that one sees is basically a kind of religious diversity that gives us some sort of insight into Israel's religious historical debate. So, for example, Isaiah and Micah are going to be debating one another, where they differ, so that you can actually kind of push back to that to find these kind of internal debates among these various factions among Israel's religious historical um, uh, groupings that all—I'll say this—and this might be controversial. That all might be true. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if, if Isaiah and Micah went and got beers together and kind of got fussy over things. I, I don't know that. Uh, so maybe that's true from a phenomenological perspective, but canonically that runs into serious problems. Um, and I think this is where we want to think about the ways in which the Bible and its and its multifaceted character does render a, a divine word, because again, the, the divine author is the one. Um, That's the primary one. This this is Aquinas' sort of classic statement at the beginning of the Summa. We read the scripture according to its authorial intent, and every Hershian's like, yay, that's that's great. Um, But then he goes on to say, recognizing that the primary author of scripture is God. So that already sort of expands our understanding of intentionality beyond the limitations of original audience, original moment, original social context reconstructed.
0: Wow. Th- this is, this is awesome. So
4: I've got a question uh, myself
0: that kind of is somewhat related to this I'm, and I would be curious who, what everybody thinks, but I want to go directly to Khan for this one because some of the, some of the things he said in his initial remarks, as I look at my own sort of like Protestant bubble, evangelical-ish, um, it seems like 10 years ago, this was super cool. It was almost a little edgy. And over the last what feels like five to 10 years, it's been replaced by an interest in dogmatic theology, and, uh, th- which in my mind is sort of like somehow a subset or connected to it. But there's almost a way in some of the stuff that I have read that there are people who are worried that in some sense, like Heath said, people are cooking the books in advance to get the interpretation that they want. And then hearing what you said, Khan, about sort of like there's this, people can somehow make rough edges into really neat edges. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on the current trends in just, let's broad Protestant evangelical theology when it comes to this sort of method? Are Do you have worries? Do you have concerns? Or you think this is all headed in the right direction? Maybe they're just emphasizing some things in ways that I don't love.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I couldn't comment on uh, where I think the general landscape is. I don't feel like I have a big enough bird's eye view on that. I pay attention to the areas that I'm interested in and pretty much ignore everything else. Um, And with no offense to to Dan, um, you know, I call systematicians system magicians for a reason. Uh, And it's (laughs) no due offense. I mean... Yeah, it'd be great to be a magician right I mean it's yeah but but sometimes I'm like wow you know um yeah it, it's the smoothing smoothing out of the edges or um making reconstructions that are just as fanciful as biblical scholars can make um and and uh, that that really concerns me but it's it's not limited to contemporary concern this has been going on you know, for as long as the church has been around. I mean, this is what this is what we do. Um, And I think part of it is um, part of it is, I think, uh, simply tribalism, that we we form our groups, um, we baptize them and sanctify them and say this is a holy group. Um, And so, you know, we um, so and we, we construct our way of viewing reality and God and the scriptures. And then if you go against that constructive view, then you're unholy or you're a rebel because we're we're a holy group. And so we're right, obviously, we're on God's side. So if you disagree with us, you're wrong. And it just sort of creates this very powerful conforming force um, with sort of theological authority. And uh, I'm just very wary of that. Um, uh, And I think there are factors in play that are not... Um, necessarily Christian, not necessarily um, spiritual factors. And we need to allow just as the te- just as we need to appreciate and defend the humanity of the text, I think we need to appreciate and accept the humanity as we all do obviously, of our interpreters um, of our churches, of our preachers, of our guilds um, and of our theological you know clubs, um, they just We should just expect that there are flaws and um, we should expect that we haven't quite got the balance right here or there. Um, we should expect that as we continue to read the scriptures in a recursive fashion, um, that our theology will, will change. Um, I think that's the way it's meant to be. Um, I don't think we're supposed to arrive at a kind of calcified version of the truth. Having said that, I do think there are, you know, certain strong non-negotiables, and they're they're basically reflected in um, what I think we understand as the rule of faith and represented by the creeds. Um, But I don't think that they should be, uh, you know, authoritative in the sense that the scriptures are authoritative. I think there are reading of the scriptures that a group, a large group over a long period of time have kind of sifted this diversity to a point of gone okay i think these are the things where there's unity and there's really we can be really confident about this and if, if you if you really don't accept these things then you kind of well you know uh, i don't know what you do with that um but um i accept that we have that and i think it, it's useful um but i um i put it at a lower level than uh the um, authority of the scriptures themselves as of course we should but um, but that does mean that in their recursive reading of the scriptures we need to just keep reforming as the reformers told us to do um, and as the Anglican 39 articles tell us to do um, so yeah I'm not sure if I've answered your question I just sort of went on a bit of a joyride there
3: um,
0: no that's good helpful anybody have any follow-ups Dan go ahead
3: Yeah, I am the minority voice here as a a systematic theologian uh, among the uh, um, hired panelists for tonight anyway. (laughs) Um, So maybe I can respond in a couple of ways. One would be to say that (laughs) like the term evangelical, which I think Khan has a book out about, um, pretty much anything you say about systematicians slash magicians is probably true. (laughs) and, um, like shooting fish in a barrel. So, um, guilty as charged is probably the first thing to say. The second thing to say is this, this will be my chance to get autobiographical. Um, after my master of divinity, I did a master of theology in new Testament before, um, switching to try to become a systematic theologian. And as I was at my professor's House. It was a tutorial-based THM, and we um, we had to be ready to translate and cite parse uh, each different book of the New Testament um, throughout the year. And we also had to write a summary of our current view of all the major exegetical problems um, in each book. So I produced like 300 pages of this material in the couple years of this THM, as I realized that I was going to become a systematic theologian, Lord willing, and not a New Testament scholar, I had to break this news to my New Testament professor who was a crusty old German named Karl Hoke. And I knew that this was going to break his heart and it might upset him as well. So I tried to figure out how to tell him And this this was true, uh, but I decided to pitch it as emphasizing, I want to be an exegetically responsible systematic theologian. There are plenty of systematic theologians out there. At that time, there were tons of budding New Testament scholars out there. But I said, you know, this is a calling to try to bring these exegetical skills to the doing of systematic theology. And his response, I'll try not to make this too loud for the internet, but... His response in his armchair was to start shouting at me, if you try to do exegetically responsible systematic theology, they'll crucify you, they'll crucify you. He starts yelling over and over again, uh, a moment that I will never forget. I still am trying to do exegetically responsible systematic theology. And here I would say, I think it has to be possible, at least in principle, If I confess that Scripture is fully the Word of God, and God is a God of truth, and I believe, therefore, that Scripture is inerrant in all that it teaches, there ought to be forms, uh, with all of our human um, finitude and fallibility, there ought to be forms in which we can bear witness to uh, unity and diversity a coherent uh, presentation or set of presentations of the divine teaching that's there in Scripture. Of course, we don't want it to be flattening out the diversity of the witnesses. We don't want it to be calcified, steadfast and immovable, never abounding in the work of the Lord. But it does seem to me that we, uh, we need some form of systematic thinking. And we need to be honest with ourselves when we do biblical theology, which was at the heart of my seminary curriculum and I... I love the Moore College version of it um, to a great degree. I think it's very friendly to TIS. Um, I think we need to be honest that when we do biblical theology in that way, we are using thought systems to speak of covenant, promise and fulfillment, uh, kingdom, and these kinds of uh, themes, uh, they They contribute to thought systems. In fact, they contribute to systematic theology systems, frankly, right, that are just trying to deal with what uh, major concepts are there organically in the biblical texts. So absolutely, systematics can be and has been done in all sorts of wrong ways. I took my systematic theology courses in my MDiv as late as possible. I sat in the back of the room and I lobbed verbal bomb question after verbal bomb question at my poor professor. And when I told him a couple of years later, I think I might be called to become a systematic theologian, he said to me, I thought you might be good at that, but I didn't think I could possibly tell you because you were so committed to inductive exegesis that you wouldn't you know, be willing to listen to me. So autobiographically, I'm on team anti-systematics, except that at a certain point, my own attempts to do biblical theology landed me awkwardly in this complicated space of trying to do a a sort of low-level version of um, biblically faithful ST. That doesn't mean I'm right, but it does bear witness to how I think an evangelical might end up trying to do a form of systematic theology that is not guilty of all the things that the usual discipline is rightly charged with. And this does lead me to say one other thing in response to to, I think it was Mark or maybe it was Heath earlier who mentioned John Webster. Um, John was a friend, and I don't want to blame him as a mentor, but um, I, I certainly admire him a great deal and learned a lot from him. But I think John is also proof of a kind of British theological culture that um, we evangelicals over here in the States and maybe in Australia, too, have something on. Um John could talk about the importance and the possibility of doing biblically rich systematic theology, uh, but he didn't know how to uh, reference the Bible frequently and deeply in his theological work. He could talk about it at a meta level and challenge us to do it in wonderful ways, and he could exegete for preaching or for certain kinds of essay forms, but he actually didn't know uh, how to refer to the Bible organically and regularly uh, in his dogmatic work. I don't say that to criticize John so much as to say how hard this is. And so as Mark would say, let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, kind of at the preaching and commentary and biblical scholarship levels, I would say too, there's a sense in which we theologians need to catch up to what the church was classically doing. There's another sense in which we have, a lot of unconquered territory ahead of us to get back to non-proof texting forms of um, biblically uh, rich systematic theology. That's going to be a really long-term project for us, I think.
4: Can I jump in on that, Jordan? Is that yeah, possible? And go Garrett, for it. Um, that's that's really helpful. Not, I'm, um I think I'm probably one of these Bible people that's more drawn to dogmatic theologians than not. So I mean, this is where Khan and I would have probably an interesting conversation. <clears throat> one of the things that I think I'm so drawn to is the kind of questions that that theologians bring to the biblical text because of the of the um because of the breadth of their engagement with the tradition, I think, um they bring questions to the text that I think, analytically trained biblical scholars tend to be a little bit, um, I don't know how to say this, uh, lack, lacking in that kind that kind of um, theological breadth and and frankly interest. I mean, this is why I won't say the name of the commentary, <clears throat> but I remember saving up my dimes when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old to get what everyone told me was the best commentary out there on, on, on the book of Luke. Um, and I got it and I, and it, and I just remember thinking this, this doesn't help me really very much at all. Um, you know, and, and so all of that to say, it's interesting for me to see, and you don't always have to agree with it, but the way in which some theologians actually do engage the Bible well, like that, that that's worth sitting with For example, uh, Catherine Sonderegger. I mean, you might have some, and I haven't, I haven't read it cover to cover, but I have taken some deep dives in her two volumes of her, of her systematic theology. And that to me is kind of as an example of someone who's thinking about for, um, omniscience and omnipotence by an engagement with numbers. I mean, Keith, Heath, we have to love this, right? Um, Leviticus and the holy fire of God. I mean, these are long, deep, not proof texting, deep readings of the Bible that, again, we I, I have some, you know, I think her reading of the Shema and the Chad as oneness over, you know, I think there's some things we can kind of wrestle with. But nevertheless, there are some examples. there of someone that's doing sort of deep biblical reading, and and Carl Bart. I mean, I'm probably more critical of Bart now than I ever have been, and you know my own sort of theological trajectory. But but I mean, here's someone like Bart writing on the pride of humanity in Church Dogmatics for one. How does Bart end his section on the pride of humanity by four, five, six pages of that ten point font? Um, small print engagement with the book of Jeremiah. And it's one long engagement with the book from beginning to end. He finishes the engagement with Jeremiah, period, flip the page, next section. He doesn't come in to say, and now that we've engaged Jeremiah, let me give you some more summation of what I need to tell you about the pride of humanity. Doesn't do that. He lets Jeremiah get the final word in the in the theological point that he's that he's seeking to engage. So I do think um, there are just some sort of fascinating examples of people that are out there that have done this. And we're all looking for models and exemplars. I mean, this is to dance to dance point. This, this is hard to do. I've done a theological commentary and I, I, it's hard for me even to look at it. Um, so it's, it is it's hard to do. Um, but I do think we have some some models of that that are out there among theologians.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Mark. So it looks like Ched wrote in a novel for us here, so you guys can look at this. Normally, I show everybody the comments when I ask questions. I'll try to go through it. When we're talking about phases of TIS in particular, do you all have some thoughts on the effect of the shifting shape of the conversation where newer students slash participants enter in this discussion? And he goes on, for example, a student cutting their teeth on TIS having never read er, the early Van Hooser, Watson, Fowl Exchanges on Method, or entering the canon discussions having never read Child's or Science's Corpus. In other words, someone responding to the central concerns of TIS as starting points rather than as hard-earned conclusions in relation to discipline-specific shifts from previous decades. Where someone has entered the conversation, what time is it is for them in the history of the discussion or which disciplinary continent uh, hails from it seems to have substantive effect on their evaluation of TIS. So do you think you, we should still be listening to the ghost of Tis Pastor seek to make some of the same conversational moves with different dance partners. Thanks, Chad. I
3: don't know if Dan, go ahead. I'll I'll weigh in hopefully quickly. When I teach the opening doctoral seminar at Wheaton on whatever we call it now, hermeneutics and biblical theology or biblical interpretation and theology or something, some title like that. I'm actually increasing and not decreasing my focus on the history of the discussion, but not just in relation to TIS, more in relation to biblical theology, and then bringing in hermeneutical factors and TIS as elements of a larger history of how evangelicals have engaged biblical theology. I find that with MDivs getting shorter— or with more students coming to Wheaton's doctoral program without an MDiv, even just with a discipline-specific master's degree, and with less and less church formation, they simply do not know the history of evangelicals vis-a-vis biblical and theological scholarship. And so they are uh, more open in some ways, as we've talked about, but they are also more vulnerable in other ways to socialization by the discipline unawares because their uh, training is thinner and their focus is narrower. So I find it's actually more important to give them a sense of history, starting from kind of the George Ladd era up through how have evangelicals engaged or re-engaged biblical scholarship and used biblical theology to do so, I need to give them some sense of historical perspective, both regarding how hard this is and how relatively recent um, our engagement in this enterprise has been. And so I'm paying more attention to history and less attention, actually, to current theoretical voices because of where I'm finding the students are at.
0: anyone want to add on to that?
5: I might just say a couple of words to that. Um, I certainly resonate with the idea uh, moving from LAD forward to give uh, to contextualize students into the discussion. I do think uh, this is very practical. Um, when we're talking about FAL or Sites or whomever, uh contextualizing you know biblical theology of the old and new testaments and those kinds of volumes that are just magisterial in scope one of the things that i found uh to be very helpful is and this is very practical chad but the bottom line is identify the crucial essays or journal articles that help tell the story and give them in short compass um the you know it's the basic blocking and tackling. What are the big issues? I think the ontology of scripture is a big issue. Uh, okay, I, I think what what the issue of historicism. I mean, you might read uh, you know Mark's book. Uh, that's you know relatively short. Thank you for that, Mark. That was very helpful. Uh, but I do think uh, you know or um, you know some of those early. Uh, Essays in Pro Ecclesia. I, I think those essays are really important for setting the discussion. And then, you know, now that we've been living with the Journal for Theological Interpretation, identifying some key voices, both in Old and New Testament, as well as some of the big theological, uh, uh, systematic theologians in that s those uh, in that that series. I'm thinking of a couple of other things that I would just uh, emphasize, and it goes to Coming back full circle with what uh, Dana said about, uh, I guess it was, was it context was the third C or culture or something like this. I do think uh, nowadays students, at least at the undergraduate level where I I teach, they are very interested in culture and contextualization. And so uh, some interesting work, uh, I think, yes, um, a lot of this interesting work is done in Durham. Uh, it was being done in, at St. Andrews. I think you do have, you know, the continental uh, European conversation, as well as, as uh, England, the UK really does set a lot of the agenda. But I'm thinking particularly about the work of Richard Briggs, which is endlessly fascinating in my view. And he's drawing in particular biblical texts or passages in with uh, context, contextualization, um, post-colonialism and for our students that is really interesting and it helps do some of the basic work of blocking and tackling with the big questions and then that opens to uh, more significant discussions that then you can point your students into um, the larger works like the child's or you know I was just I I just picked up Chris Seitz's new book on uh, convergences I think I mean that's a really interesting book you know But that's a larger read. And for most of our students, especially at the undergraduate level, uh, these kids have haven't graduated uh, high school, having read a book all the way through. And I'm not this is statistics. So we've got to help them with basic ideas and concepts and then usher them into the conversation.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, we are nearing the time that we had planned on but I wanted to give each of you a, just a chance to maybe give some some parting words or some a closing statement maybe just uh, just a, a couple minutes each maybe something that you're excited about with regard to theological interpretation of scripture kind of from here forward or maybe possibly a warning for uh, those who are listening um, maybe uh, Dr Ginnelette will let you start.
4: Sure. Um, first of all, what a delight! Thank you for this. I I, I go into these things always a little nervous, you know, just like a live wire. I don't know what's going to happen, but this this has been instructive, and I'm I'm grateful to, to have been a part of it. Um, I I guess you know I would I I would uh, um just expand a little bit on something that Khan said earlier, and I might frame it a bit differently, but I, I if I'm hearing Khan rightly. I think what one of the things that he's saying in his little bit of a Jeremy ad against uh, systematicians is that we we all we always have to give ourselves to a close reading of the Bible that that's not what you know whether that's atavistic retrieval, in other words, my approach to the Bible is just telling you what Calvin Luther said, and that's it. Um, or, Whether it's a historical-grammatical approach that 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 seeking to finalize our engagement with the Bible as if we've now mastered it, I think that's a big part of maturation that we're that we're wrestling with as as theologians and, and 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 ministers within the church. I mean, the Bible's never something to be mastered. It's it's not over ever. You know that sort of famous scene when when Bard is leaving the University of Bonn and he says any my parting words your exegesis exegesis and exegesis i mean I, I know that that gets repeated so often but i think it's so rich and instructive um because the subject matter of the bible is infinitely fascinating i mean this is sort of Augustine's hermeneutics 101 right we can gain get it as a child and yet the subject matter of the bible can humble us enough because of of the of the limitations of our own finite minds so there's that. But I'd also say the material character of the Bible is, is fascinating, too. I mean, the ongoing associative reading of the Bible in conversation with itself in light of its subject matter, like all that bouncing around that's going on to me, that's that's where the combustive work of the Holy Spirit happens in that. Um, and that that would be my sort of prayer for those that are used for students or professionals or whomever who could sort of thinking through this, that Giving one's heart and mind and affections to the Bible, and because of what it gives us in terms of divine subject matter, that—that's—that's that's where the health of the church, I think, in its future resides.
1: Excellent, excellent, uh, Doctor Campbell. Would you like to go next with some parting words?
2: Uh, sure, and and thanks for those words, Mark, um, and and for your comments about Bart then and, and earlier, uh, and in fact, in, in relation to Dan's, uh, autobiographical expose, um, one of the reasons I love Bart is, uh, just how seriously he does wrestle with the text. And I find that so enriching and I do love, um, that kind of systematic theology. So I just wanted to rebalance a little after my little tirade, uh, perhaps, um, I think I would just add, uh, since I said al- already so much about the diversity of the Scriptures, um, just a little distinction that I think might be helpful on the other side, that there's a there's a helpful difference between unity and uniformity. Uh, and I do think the Scriptures have an inherent unity and that that, that is one of the reasons why uh, I believe in them, as holy scripture, is that I think that that is divinely superintended um, amidst such, you know, otherwise seeming chaos of the messiness of scripture. There is a remarkable unity, and it, it's quite incredible. Um, and I think, as uh, the people of God, the church needs a similar unity, but that's different from a uniformity um, and within the church, we need to respect and delight in and appreciate uh, our diversity, even when we it means that we differ on seemingly important issues. But um, there's, there's nonetheless a unity uh, uh, in reverence for the scriptures, in worship of God through Christ and um, experience of the spirit um, without uniformity. And that it's the uniformity, I suppose, that I like to rail against. Uh, but, um, perhaps that's a helpful thing to add in there for this conversation, but thank you again. Uh, really enjoyed it and learned a lot.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Dr. Thomas, would you like to give some parting words as well?
5: Well, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you so much for the conversation and for the invitation to, uh, talk about a topic that we are all excited to talk about. Um as we conclude, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help but think about the things that we haven't talked about. Uh so one of those uh for me, um I think when we're talking about theological interpretation, um how do we understand figural reading? Uh you know, Mark talked about the association of how the the text relates to its itself. I, I, I suppose um the boundaries of what that means. How do we know when a text is referring to itself? Um, how does an earlier text open up a later text? And then how does a later text open up an earlier text? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that I think are, uh, at least at our students, um, they're interested in these kinds of questions. Why is it, why can I uh, relate this text to that? What are, the, what are the guides or what are the helps that help me do that? Uh, does tradition play, uh, the Christian tradition, or does an earlier reader enable me to make association, figural association between texts? Or am I free to do that on my own, just by the spirit or, or some other guide? Those are questions that we haven't talked about, but I think those are live in theological interpretation of scripture. Uh, and part of that has to do with what is the nature of tradition as a helpful guide in theological reading? Uh, can I go beyond the tradition? Uh, am I constrained by the tradition uh, or the Christian traditions? I think th- those are uh, questions. Um, and this gets to the other issue of context. Now that we're knowing uh, and understanding more about uh, Christianities that we we weren't familiar with or, or gaining greater insight into, whether we're talking about Syriac Christianity or Ethiopic Christianity or whatever it might be, Uh, How how much does that voice play into our understanding of the text? I think those are the questions we haven't talked about, but I think in, in the years to come, those are going to be the big questions on theological interpretation of scripture. And we'll be seeing more and more work that, that draws in those voices into the conversation.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Trier.
3: First, I'll give an advertisement that, uh, Kevin Van Hooser has a major book in process, close to completion on transfigural interpretation. And um, I think it will uh, both be relevant in terms of how the transfiguration itself helps us to think uh, about biblical interpretation. And it will address some of the points that Heath is rightly flagging up about the significance of figural interpretation and, the fact that there's a lot of work yet to be done there. Uh, Beyond the advertisement, I'll say an event like this shows us that um, friendship, um, communal conversation, interdisciplinary conversation, conversation with a measure of productive disagreement uh, is crucial to the future of TIS. Uh, Some years ago, I did a study of um, David Yago's famous essay, which has played a a significant role in the expansion of TIS, his essay on Philippians 2 in relation to the Nicene dogma, and I looked at exegetical commentaries on Philippians, and there was pretty close to a 20-year silence in the commentary tradition in which nary a biblical scholar until Steve Fowle, who of course was heavily invested in TIS, no biblical scholar uh, cited Yego's essay. And I think that was telling not to, again, fault uh, biblical scholars one-sidedly for something that can be true for both sides. We tend to get so oriented to our projects and so socialized into our guilds that we rarely read each other's literature. We can scarcely keep up with our own disciplinary literature, so the only way to read some of each other's literature is to make uh, sacrifices and to slow down how quickly we complete projects. And it's not for me to tell anyone to do what to do in any given situation, but I think in the aggregate we need more interdisciplinary reading and exchange if uh, TIS is is going to um, bear maximal. Fruit for the future. So, want to emphasize that point about community, and then related to that, want to emphasize a point about time. If you think historically about theological development in the church, a lot of theological developments took a very long time—decades or even centuries—of debate and exchange, not always pretty, uh, to sort themselves out into, uh, if not creeds and councils, at least into some stable patterns of disagreeing groups. So we're in relatively early days of certain aspects of this project, and we should be realistic about the amount of time it's going to take. So to Mark's point, I too have tried to write a theological commentary and don't want to look at it very often. And it's hard. I can't tell people, and Heath, I think, has as well. Um, I know Khan has, but, you know, that's kind of his day job, I don't know, in a different sort of way, or maybe he's just better at it than the rest of us, but it's really hard, hard work. Well, imagine now uh, theologians trying to wrestle with the Bible and to write other kinds of books. You know, this is going to take years to do well, and if we add in meaningful interdisciplinary communal exchange and Christian friendship across some of these lines, that's only going to add to the time it's going to take. So we're going to need to learn a certain kind of patience, I think, to let uh, a lot of experiments be taken and to uh, test everything and hold fast to that, which is good.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well thanks everybody. This has been all, uh, all sorts of wisdom that has been dropped here and hopefully we've encouraged you all to think not just the panelists, the people who are watching, uh, I imagine. And here's one thing I want to tell you to do. If you're watching this now or later, the London Lyceum is not an institution with any money. So I have no way to compensate them for their labors. I know they did a lot of work in this. So I'm going to do an indirect route. Go buy one of their books that doesn't mean they're going to get paid very much. So I need a lot of you to buy a lot of books. So I will try to link to some of them in the description so you can do that to support their work. Because clearly uh, they're doing awesome stuff and serving the church and uh, pushing us to think clearer and to develop those right instincts and intuitions when it comes to both the text and just interpersonal relationships. I, I love just being able to have opportunities like this just to display really smart people who are really wise but also really caring and have a disposition about them that just treats people with love and respect. I think we need more of that and hopefully we can encourage that. So thanks everybody who's been watching for tuning in to the London Lyceum. I like to call us the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, So hopefully you've had a good time doing that. Not everybody likes analytic theology. Not everybody likes Baptist theology. Not everybody likes confessional theology. So maybe just pick one and say, if you like that, you can join us too and have a lot of fun. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. This has been awesome.
4: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger